Holy Father, uh, as we stand in the midst of our busyness, uh, all the things that uh, seem to consume our time and our thoughts, Father, we ask this morning that you still our hearts. Allow us, Father, in your presence to stand silent, to listen for your spirit, to allow your holy word to work in our hearts, Father, to direct us in the direction that will lead us home to you. We thank you, O Lord, for your holy word. We thank you that today we begin uh, to study from the gospel of Mark and pray that Jesus will speak to us anew. Father, we thank you that we come to share the feast of sinners, the feast that Jesus Christ invites us to, not on the basis of our righteousness, our good works, but on the basis, Father, of your great and overwhelming love and grace. Because he went to that cross, Father, we know that our sins are forgiven and our home is with you. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And amen. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that its scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed. We may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. I'll be reading from the second chapter of Mark, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eleanor. And uh, as we get into Mark, I'm just going to say a little bit about the gospel. Uh, This is a communion Sunday, so the message is a bit shorter than, than on other Sundays. But I did want us to be familiar with this gospel while it is the second gospel uh, in order in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is considered to be the earliest of the gospels and uh, really uh, the one that was... uh, uh, essentially written by, by someone who did not personally witness Jesus, but who uh, knew very closely uh, Peter, who obviously is a firsthand great source uh, for the gospel. And Mark was an assistant of, uh, of Peter and also, uh, uh, of course, went on some of Paul's missionary uh, journeys. And so this gospel really gives us the first introduction to Jesus, and, and uh, 90% of the gospel of Mark, you will also read the same occurrences of what he's talking about in the gospel of Matthew. And in Luke's gospel, about 50% of what Mark talks about is included in there also, in addition to additional information about Jesus and his ministry. 
So uh, this was written uh, just before, uh, this account was written just before the destruction of, of Jerusalem, uh, in, uh, which was about 70 AD, or about four decades after the death of Jesus Christ. And it was written apparently because of the language it's used. Uh, Matthew, it's obvious he's writing to people who would be more familiar with Jewish customs and with the Jewish language because of how he writes his gospel. This one apparently was written more to the Gentiles and especially to those in Rome. And uh, so, uh, so that makes it a little bit easier for us to understand also because most of us aren't that familiar with the Jewish customs. So that's just a little bit about some of the background of the Gospel of Mark. But this morning we begin in Mark 2. The first chapter describes some of the things that in the other Gospels take many chapters to describe. Mark moves very quickly through things. And so you have John the Baptist coming with his message uh, to repent, and, and he baptizes. Uh, he baptizes Jesus, and it takes about one verse for him to describe that baptism. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness, and then Jesus begins to invite people to follow him. All that happens in the first chapter. And so you can tell this is a very compressed uh, gospel, but it's great because it's easy for us to go and to sort of see that outline of Jesus' ministry. And so by the time we get to the second chapter, he's gathered up some disciples, and, uh, and we come to the passage that Eleanor just read, which involves the calling of a man named Levi, uh, better known to us as Matthew. And so uh, Levi is a Jewish man, but he is a tax collector for Rome. Now you can imagine, uh, you know, most people don't like uh, people who work for the IRS to begin with. I mean, I've met some very nice people, but I can remember on one occasion living up in the D.C. area there, there were employees of the IRS there, and uh, I was using our company van to collect uh, clothing and items for a thrift store, a non-profit thrift store in our community. And so there was a man who had volunteered, and so when he got into the van, I introduced myself, and we talked a little bit, and I said, so what do you do for a living? And uh, he says, I work for the IRS. And then I thought... Van being used for non-company purposes, you know, and I, you know, I was uh, beginning to go through my head. I better be a little bit quiet about how I use this van, you know, like for camping and other things for myself. So, um, so it makes us a bit nervous to be around people who, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, who we think may uh, uh, turn whatever we say against us, and and. Tax collectors in the time of Jesus were extremely unpopular, especially among the people that they were taxing, and they were lumped right in there with the sinners. Very often you would hear the phrase, tax collectors and sinners, okay, as if they just match up, you know, uh, uh, horse and carriage, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, there's, there's no doubting a tax collector is a sinner and a traitor to his people. And so uh, Matthew has this profession, and it tells us that uh, Jesus comes along, and, and invites him to come follow him. Now it's interesting because in the first chapter when he invites the fishermen to come, he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Obviously, that isn't going to mean much to a tax collector to say, I'll make you a fisher of men. So you can see right there how Jesus adapts his invitation to the person. And it's not always going to be identical. And he just says to him, come and follow me. And, uh, and that's how we begin with those words, come and follow me. Uh, I want to start, though, uh, with a story, uh, and this is uh, out of the Minnesota Twins. 
uh, back in their baseball program back in the 1980s. So when you go to the ballpark and you got your program, there was this little introduction to baseball in the beginning. And I want to read that for a second because I think this, is, this illustrates so well the way Jesus called people and the way he calls us to be his disciples. This is how they described baseball. You have two sides, one out in the field, one in. Each man that's on the side that's in goes out, and when he's out, he comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When three men are out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. You're following now, okay? When both sides have been in and out nine times, including the not outs, that's the end of the game. You see, baseball can be a confusing game, right? And, and what, what the, the purpose of putting in, into the program was not to try to use that to help people to understand, but to make the point to them, folks, if you have kids, do not require them to know everything about baseball before they begin playing baseball. Just take them out and let them throw a ball and swing a bat and do those fundamental things. They will learn the rules as they go along. And sometimes what we have done in the church over the last uh, 2,000 years is we have had requirements for membership. So before you can be part of our church, you need to have the new member class. And you need to go through a catechism. And you need to learn and learn and learn. And the thing is that Jesus Jesus just came to Matthew. Now Matthew no doubt knew his reputation. Matthew probably was shocked in some way that a rabbi, and Jesus was considered a teacher, a rabbi, and they would gather up followers, and usually they're looking for the most righteous and best uh, people they can find, and Jesus is going out and getting fishermen, in this case, a tax collector, a sinner, inviting him to come. Matthew had to be a little bit shocked. And, And to the Pharisees and the people who were those standard religious kind of people, To see Jesus invite a tax collector would have been sort of like, well, back to the baseball analogy, you know, when you were a kid and and they were picking sides, and you always had that that one kid that was the last one to be chosen, and he's standing there, and, and, uh, and, and the one captain says, you know what, you can have them, we don't want them. Well, that's kind of like, you know, choosing Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of your disciples. Why in the world would you choose the guy who nobody wants? And so Matthew's um, a response to Jesus uh, seems very enthusiastic. I mean, right away he's going to throw a dinner party in honor of Jesus and invite his friends. His friends who are people who uh, nobody wants to associate with e- either. We know that Matthew, any friends that he would have, could not have been people who were considered righteous like the Pharisees because they wouldn't have been associating with Matthew to begin with. And so we have this dinner. Uh, The other evening, I I was at dinner with a couple in this church. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that they were sinners, I went to the dinner and and, and enjoyed it with them. But, uh, uh, you know, part of being a Christian is that fellowship. I love the fact that the first thing Matthew does when Jesus says, come and follow me, is he invites Jesus to meet his friends. Isn't that great? Shouldn't that be a model for everybody? That when you come to know Jesus and become a follower of Jesus, that the first thing you do is you go and tell your friends, I'd like for you to meet my new friend Jesus. 
And so that, uh, that wonderful example to us uh, of, of, of Matthew, someone who had so much in the eyes of everybody else to be ashamed of and so much to be forgiven for, you know, to, to those who have been, give, uh, been forgiven much, uh, there is a great deal of gratitude back. They make the best followers of Jesus Christ because they know they have been forgiven. And in fact, in the story here, Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees, because they, uh, they literally say, he is hanging around scum. Now it says in your Bibles, tax, uh, tax collectors and sinners, but why is he hanging around that scum? And so Jesus says to him, you know what? Is it back? There we go. Okay, got to keep my left hand out of that pocket there because I tend to cut, cut that off. Uh, the reason I'm hanging around with them, it's, it's, it's my mission statement. Do you know my mission statement? I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's just what it tells us in the Gospels. Jesus says, this is my purpose, my only purpose, to come to seek and to save the lost. And he says, you know, uh, people who are well don't need a physician. So I'm going to those who are sick because they need me. Now, it's interesting because it's not that the Pharisees didn't need Jesus. It's not that they didn't need him as Savior, but what they believed was that they didn't need a doctor. They didn't see themselves as sick at all. They presented themselves as being holy, spiritually healthy. And so Jesus is saying to them, you're the kind of people who you're not going to call the doctor up to make an appointment no matter what. You're just going to go through life pretending that you're never ill and that there's nothing wrong with you. And later on throughout the Gospels, he's going to say uh, to them, you know, you're like whited sepulchers, painted tombs. They look really good on the outside, but on the inside there's just dead men's bones. And he'll, he'll call them uh, hypocrites. Hypocrites uh, meaning somebody who presents themselves in one way, but on the inside they're totally different. And if Jesus hated anything in this world, it was hypocrisy. And so he knew the Pharisees needed them, but the question was, would they come to the point where they knew that they needed him and would invite him to their homes? You know, through the Gospels, the Pharisees play that role kind of as, as the accusers of Jesus but we do have several times in the Gospels where a Pharisee comes to Jesus and actually believes in him and actually usually secretly supports him. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, even uh, the tomb of Jesus, which he was laid into, was given to him by a Pharisee. And so uh, it wasn't that the Pharisees were this, this hard-line, no-heart kind of people, but most of them were more concerned about what people thought of them. And Jesus said uh, about them, he said, they love to stand up in front of the crowds in their flowing robes and, and, and long prayers and do things to impress everybody. Uh, Jesus hated that sort of thing. And I really relate to Jesus in that. I'm not saying that there's not pride. There's a lot of pride in my heart. But one thing I've never liked is standing up in front of people trying to impress them with the robes. And so you see, and, and today I didn't even think this is a good day for me to sort of dress down. This morning I was just thinking it might be hot in here so I didn't wear a tie or anything. But I don't like to dress up for things. Anybody here kind of share that? Uh, guys, yeah. If you, if, if you weren't married, you'd have one set of pants and, and a shirt. And you'd wear that thing over and over. And if you had two, they would look exactly the same. Right? 
because you hate to have to choose anything. I'm always kind of embarrassed when that happens. When I first became a pastor, um, uh, or was about to become a pastor, the uh, pastor at the church that I was at, he was all about the dress-up. He was all about the, he had red robes and all color, these beautiful robes and, and uh, gold necklaces and things he would wear and all these rings on every finger that he would dramatically take off when he did a baptism. A young man. And it just turned my stomach. And then on my last Sunday there, uh, as I was leaving, I was supposed to preach the sermon. And I remember he took me into his office and he handed me this red robe and wanted me to wear it. And he gave me this, this heavy gold necklace medallion thing with a big cross on it. And he wanted me to wear that. And I, I was refusing. And then finally he, he gave me like a black robe. And so, okay, just to get out of here, I'll wear that thing. And I remember going through the congregation and all these guys, you know, it'd be like, look at Bob. You know, you know, look at Bob, you know, and kind of snickering and laughing. So that hasn't been my thing. Reminds me of a story I heard the other night. We were at, at uh, Mark and Laura had invited me over. They felt sorry uh, because I had been eating uh, bologna all week uh, with Lydia gone. And so they had me over the other night and we were talking about uh, uh, cruises, cruise ships. And uh, they shared the story of how their son, one time, they go on this cruise, and if you ever go on a cruise, most of the cruises have that, that dinner at night that's kind of formal. Uh, you go and you dress, everybody dresses up, and their son didn't want to dress up. He wasn't going to dress up. And so I think Laura said, you know, if you'll dress up the first night, you don't have to dress up the other nights, but just come and do it. And he got into that situation. He dressed up and he went, and he ended up dressing up every night after that because he enjoyed it so much. But, you know, we're all kind of uh, in this uh, situation where there is that, that sense at times of uh, uh, who am I? And some of us are uh, uh, more uncomfortable with presenting ourselves as something that we know inside we're not. We hate that sense, and so we kind of try to dress down and all. I mean, I have a lot of other flaws, but the one thing you can't accuse me of is overdressing. So, uh, so we go we go through this, and Jesus is eating with these with the sinners. And I'm going to tell you one thing that this does not mean, because I, I hear this now over and over. I see memes about it. I see it on Facebook. Jesus eats with sinners, and what that is is an accusation back to people who believe in sin that uh, there's something wrong with you, that you don't like sinners. Well, the fact of the matter is Jesus ate with the sinners, but in no way did Jesus approve of their sin. That's why he said they they need a physician because they had sin. They they needed him and he needed to be with them. But that does not mean that he endorsed their sinful lifestyle. And so we have to watch in this age of of tolerance and acceptance and and not non-judgmentalism that we go too far and just say, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, and we just throw the Bible out. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, uh, uh, don't think for a moment that I have come to abolish the law. Not a jot or tittle of the law is going to disappear. It's nothing, you know, I have come to elevate the law, to fulfill the law, to bring it forward. What Jesus was against was the traditions of men that had been added to the laws, the interpretations of Scripture that violated the Scriptures. 
when people added on to things. I've got a few examples, if I can locate them here, that I, I think are fascinating. And uh, these are the things that the Pharisees who are accusing uh, Jesus of all sorts of things, this is what they're accusing him of. Number, rule number one, you can't eat with sinners. You don't associate with people who are sinful. Come ye from uh, out among them, you know, you'll hear that sort of thing said. Get away from them. You know what? I would rejoice today if we had even more sinners here now than we have right now. Uh, we've probably got maybe 120 sinners here right now. And only one or two of us who aren't in that category. But, uh, you know, doesn't matter to me. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. So fill the pews with sinners. Because every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need each other and we need God and we need Jesus. Period. That's it. But the Pharisees believed that the way you did it was you classified yourself as a righteous person, and from that time on, you didn't dare come in contact with the sinners. So that was their first rule. The, the second rule was you can't eat food when we say you can't. We have times that you need to fast. And uh, Jesus was accused of not obeying their fasting rules. And Jesus' answer to them was, it would be, I don't have to obey your rules. I'm here to obey God's rules. You made these things up. Because God calls us to fast, you decided we needed more details about it. So you said, we'll fast at this time, for this length of time. And then you began to talk about what we might be able to eat during a fast. And what would not be allowed during a fast. And so they began to create all kinds of rules about things. This is one of the things that's the criticism of the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church, which sometimes is a very complex book. And it gets us into all kinds of arguments. And, 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 and we're there arguing the letter of the law in the Book of Discipline. What the Book of Discipline was intended to do was to clarify for us what the Scriptures are telling us to do. That was, you go back to the original Book of Disciplines, they're very small. But it's just in places where there were conflict. For instance, should uh, we'll bring this to the modern day. Should, uh, when we're uh, commanded in the scriptures to preach the word, but should a woman be allowed to preach the word? You see? And so people would argue and argue, and what the book of discipline was a place where we said, this is where we as a body have come down to, and this is what we say about that. This is what we allow. But the deeper and longer you go into that, the book gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more complex. And then people forget the original word of God because you've gotten so far away from it and suddenly the word of God is forgotten. And Jesus isn't in there. And that's what I see in a lot of our discussions and arguments is that I can sit among a group of people uh, and pastors and we can talk for three hours and nobody mentions Jesus. We can have discussions about theology and nobody goes to the Bible. Because we're more interested in our interpretations than we are in what the Bible says and what Jesus says. And uh, so, so we need to be very careful about that. That's what happened with the Pharisees. They raised their opinions up to the point of being equal with Scripture. Uh, you can't pick grain out of the field to chew on during the Sabbath. That was one of the things Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They pick some grain and they eat. And Jesus says, you know... The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If a man's hungry, if a man's starving, you know, he's entitled to eat. God gave us this grain. You're calling it work, but that's by your interpretation. All that, all that God said was that you should rest on the Sabbath. And see, the Pharisees came up with a million laws about what that meant, what you could and couldn't do. 
for instance, if someone is hurting on the Sabbath, you can't help them. Jesus said to him, now which one of you, if you had a, 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 you know, a donkey or an ox or a chicken or whatever fall in a hole in the Sabbath, wouldn't go in and rescue it? You're going to do it out of that. And so, so I'm healing people on the Sabbath. What's wrong with that? Because the, the people shouldn't be subservient to the rule of the Sabbath because the whole idea of the Sabbath was to make us better people, to give us a time to rest. And boy, I tell you, I think about that all the time in today's society. I'm wondering when we're going to come to that point where there isn't a moment for any of us to rest anymore because we're so pushed. And, and, and if, if we don't have anything to do, it used to be you'd go, you'd lay down in the chair and you'd fall asleep. But today, what do you do? Oh, you check Facebook. Oh, I got a message here. I got to like that. If I don't like it, they're going to know that I didn't like it. And then, you know, you know, we, we're so occupied. Oh, oh, I got to catch up with that show. I got, to, you know, I got a million things to do, and really, none of them are important, folks. But we're we're being pressured around us. And now, what uh, uh, FedEx, I think it is, uh, or UPS, or one of them, is going to seven days a week delivery. Now, be the next thing. Yeah, they already are. Yeah, so you know we're just pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, how many of you remember the blue laws? Yeah, probably didn't like them when they were in force, right? Wish we could, you know, go and buy this and that store would be open. Now I miss them. I miss them. I mean, what a t- great time to grow up as a kid when you would take a Sunday drive with your family out into the just down the roads because you had nothing else to do. You know, uh, so we're we're pushing towards that, but uh, they had all kinds of rules. Um, there was one. Let me see here if I can. Yeah, just a couple more of these in my very short sermon. If a person walked more than seven hundred fifty yards, he broke the Sabbath. Now back to all it says in the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath is a day of rest. Keep the Sabbath holy. And from that they came up with, if you walk more than 750 yards, you broke the Sabbath. A Jewish person couldn't tie a knot or kill fleas or flies on the Sabbath. That would work good if you lived someplace where there were no fleas or flies, but that would be tough. A Jewish person couldn't wear a heavy coat because if he took it off and had to carry it, that was considered work. A woman wasn't allowed to look in the mirror because she might see a gray hair and pull it out. And that was considered reaping. You know how when you go into the field and you reap in the field? You were reaping a hair, a gray hair out, okay? Um, None of you women had to worry about that anyways. It's it's amazing. I look out. I I see very few gray hairs among us. It's it's very good. Um, so we, we have all this going on. Jesus is eating with these sinners, and he reminds them, uh, the people, you know what? I'm doing exactly what God has called us all to do. And if you want to know everything about how Jesus, what he might have said during that dinner, and what, what his feelings were, go to the Sermon on the Mount. Let Jesus speak for Jesus. Don't let other people tell you, oh, I think that Jesus said this or that or the other. Go and let Jesus speak. Because he had lots of things to say that would have pertained into that dinner. And, 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 and a lot of it had to do with loving people. Jesus was all about love of God and love of others. And the love of God is what pulled him 
to live a holy life and what should pull us to live a holy life. Not to earn salvation, you can't do it, but so that we might honor God because we love Him with everything we have and we want to be like our Father in whose image we have been created. And so we're going to live out the love of God in our lives. John Wesley said Christian perfection is this, that the love of God flow in and through you to the point where there is nothing else but godly love. And he said, I believe that's possible. I've never seen it, but I believe it's possible. It wasn't perfection in the sense that you never stumbled, but it was a perfection in the sense that everything you did was out of a godly love. And so Jesus talks about that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about loving your enemies. You know, there are scriptures that tell us, and, and think about this yourself, if Morris comes to me and said, hey Bob, I'm tired of carrying this, uh, uh, you know, he's got some firewood or something. And let's say Morris and I don't get along. He's always bad to me. This is a good illustration. Works, doesn't it? And I don't really like Morris. But Jesus said, go ahead and take the firewood. And walk with him, not just the one mile he asked you to, but do it a second mile. Go th- That's where we get that expression, going the second mile. Do it a second mile. But more than that, you know what Jesus would have said to you? And do it with a good attitude. Do it with love. Don't be begrudging about it. Don't go along complaining about it. Don't go along saying, I'm going to get, get him back. But do it with great love. And so here in this dinner with Jesus, which we're about to have together here in the Lord's Supper, Jesus invites us as sinners. Everyone here is a sinner. I always think it's interesting when people say, I can't share in the communion because I sinned or I have unforgiven sins or whatever. And I say, no, but this is the feast for sinners. Come sinners to the gospel feast, Charles Wesley wrote. So we come to this feast acknowledging our sins and acknowledging that everyone in here is a sinner. And you know, Somehow there's great strength and freedom in acknowledging that. Instead of walking around trying to, gee, you know, I somehow have to hide my sins from everybody around me. And I have to hide my sins from God, which you can't do. But to acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I stumble. And my only motivation for fighting against sin in my life is that I'm doing it because God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to that cross to die for me. And if Jesus could die on the cross for me, then I'm not, sin is not a friend of mine. And I'm going to do everything I can to live in the glory of God and in His power and the power of His love. Christianity, when it is lived out according to the Gospels and teachings of Jesus Christ, is the most powerful, glorious force on this earth. And we turn it into something Really, really boring because of the way we live it out. Last story. Uh, I shared this the other night uh, with Mark and Laura. Uh, when we were talking about cruises, uh, it's probably the first cruise I ever went on. I've only been on a couple of them, uh, but I really didn't want to go. I, I, I was like, you know, you're stuck on this boat with all these people. For, you know, I don't know. And, and mainly it was the cost I wasn't happy about. But we went on the cruise, and, you op- and, and, and when we first got on, they called everybody together, 
and, 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 and so all the passengers are together in the theater type room and, and there's this guy who's talking to us. He's like the cruise director or whatever. And he's telling us a couple of stories. He's telling us about the guy who, and the, he said, don't do this. Okay. If your room is supposed to have that ocean view, you won't have the ocean view until we pull away from the dock. You know, because they had had somebody who came and complained that my room was supposed to have a view, but it doesn't have any view, but they hadn't pulled out yet, so he was seeing the dock right outside his window. But then he told the story about the woman who came, true story, she didn't understand that the price of the cruise included all the food. And you know, when you go there, it's great food, most of these cruises. It's great food, and they got 24-hour pizza and ice cream and whatever, and you can... It's almost impossible not to gain 10 pounds or so on one of these cruises. This woman didn't understand it. And so while everybody else was dining, she was in her room and she had packed all these sandwiches, peanut butter sandwiches and things, to eat because she didn't want to pay for the meals. A lot of us are living out our Christian lives in that way. God has a feast. Come sinners to the gospel feast prepared for us and it's free. And somehow, we're going about just, just eating the crumbs and not appreciating what God has opened up for us, maybe because we're suspicious, suspicious that there is some sort of cost related to this, that somehow our life we're going to have to give up stuff for it. But the fact is, uh, Jesus Christ gave his life up for us so that we might have life and have it more fully, he said. And so come to the feast this morning and don't sit there eating your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Okay? Amen. Let us stand and, and pray. Holy Father, as we leave this place, which we have dedicated to your worship, Father, we pray that we will continue to rejoice in our hearts that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. That, Father, you have a kingdom which you have called us to be part of in this world and to spread the good news that Jesus Christ has come and that he is our king. May we go forth, Father, with your presence always with us, with your spirit upon us, and with your love flowing out of our hearts to others. In the name of Jesus, and amen.